All right, everybody, welcome back to the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host as always, Jay Nickel. I got a, a bit of a uh, Instagram friend. This is the first time we're having a chat, but we follow each other and chat all the time. Garth told me, AKA Garth's Outdoors on Instagram. I follow Garth mostly for <laughs> the food porn that he posts on, on a regular basis. And I kind of, he was instrumental in kind of inspiring me to kind of get my Traeger and, you know, and he was, he was very helpful in that regard. So anyways, I wanted to get Garth on because um, I, I want to have some more cooking stuff on the channel. And now that I've got my Traeger, I can also selfishly use it as an opportunity to pick his brain. So we're going to, we're going to talk a little hunting. We're going to talk a little cooking. we got a couple Instagram questions to end it all off. I will put Garth's um, contact info, um, um, Instagram and whatnot in the, in the show notes. If you want to give him a follow, I highly recommend it. Garth, thank you very much, my friend, for making the time. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So I actually forgot to bring this up when we were just doing the intros there. I haven't had anybody on since this insane biblical flooding has been occurring and you're kind of out there in the middle of it. Like what's, how's life in the Valley right now, man? Yeah, we're, we're a little secluded right now. It's, you know, only one highway in and out and it's a two lane road that's busy and it's, uh, we can't go anywhere. So we're kind of hanging out here and trying to figure things out as we go. We finally got milk and cheese and some gas in town now. So we're, we're on the mend. Man, with the, you know, the first round hit, everything got kind of crazy. You know, they were blocking roads off. They, they limited gas. You can still only get 45 bucks at a time here in town. And I thought we were kind of okay. And then we just got hit by this second round. We had to go to, I had to go to four grocery stores the other night to get egg whites. It was like the most random thing to be out of, but just the whole store, man. And it's like, it really, it's kind of funny that we're on here to talk about, you know, wild game and procuring your own nourishment. It's times like these that I'm like, I literally have four freezers in the house. Like as long as the power doesn't go out. And even then I'd be fine for a couple of days as long as I didn't open any of them. But man, it makes you grateful to be a little bit self-sustaining as far as the food thing goes. Yeah. And know where your opportunities are to get food, right? Luckily yeah. we still got a few days left of hunting season here. So yeah. if we have to, we can always go get a deer last minute. Yeah. hundred percent. So on that note, and you were just sharing that your family has been in the Chilliwack Valley for a very long time, since the early 1900s. So what, did, did you grow up hunting? What's your, what's your background and when did you start getting exposed to it? Well, my family's in the forest industry, so I spent a lot of time outdoors. So I think the first time I ever went on the hill, I was three months old. So I've, I've been out in the woods for a long time. So I, uh, it started there and Back then, hunting just used to be you threw the rifle in the truck when you're going to work and then you'd get a deer on the way home or on the way to work and then deal with it when you got home, right? So that's when hunt, that was hunt, how hunting was introduced to me. And then I always grew up with seeing my grandpa's huge bucks that he shot on the wall. You know, he would go out on day long adventures with his brothers and they would get huge bucks back in the day. But it's so I've always kind of known about hunting, but Recently, when I graduated from high school, it was just like, this is something I really want to pursue. And this is what I want to do. Yeah. So no, it's it, badass. So it's just, it's something that I do now as, you know, it keeps my fall busy. And then I, I probably get more enjoyment out of what I do cooking it. So that's kind of how my story is. I enjoy the, the after the kill process. 
Yeah. And we'll definitely, that's what we're going to dig into today. So what is like a typical year for you look like? Like what, what are you passionate about? What elements of hunting get you fired up the most? Well, I enjoy doing everything from the early season mule deer tags, like going to the Alpine and chasing some mule deer around. And then, you know, you kind of hit that, maybe go out for a couple rut hunts for some elk, you know, never been successful yet, but you always have that dream of finding that magical six point. And then you, you know, go back into mule deer for a rut. And then I've always been fortunate enough to kind of do a late season moose tag. So I enjoy that quite a bit, chasing bulls in the snow. So that's always been fun to me. And then we kind of finish up here with some late season deep snow blacktail hunting around here. So, yeah, I think that's a season a lot of people don't know about. I think it's a bit of a gift in the, in the lower mainland. I really enjoyed that because you really like blacktail are tough, man. I've been lucky to, to close the deal on a couple of them and I've never taken an elk in British Columbia either. I, you know, it's it, like my white whale. Um, but I love chasing blacktail, but having the edge of the snow, I think is a really big deal, especially with blacktail in that later rut season. Like if you catch something half decent, fresh, like they're an animal, especially when they're on the does that you can realistically catch up to, like that you have a legitimate chance in those conditions where in the rest of the time, when you're still hunting, it's really like rolling the dice. Maybe you find something. And what I find too is blacktail leaves so little sign. And unless you've got cams in the area, it's like, am I even in a good area? Like, it's not like other animals where there's enough of them around that you can feel confident that they're even around. Whereas when the snow, at least if I got tracks, it's like, okay, there might not be one here today, but at least I'm, I'm in an area that is holding deer. I, I feel the same way and you have to use that snow to your benefit. Right. And that's been the terrible thing about these floods is all the snow's gone off the mountains. So now, oh, we're, yeah. you know, the last 10, 15 days of season here are going to be probably slow unless we get cold here at the end of the year. Yeah. That's interesting. Eh? We got a real early dump and then it just all left because I was on my mule deer hunt last week of October, it was puking snow. And then a week after that, like the everything was just gone, man. It warmed right up and it's been, this whole season's been kind of all over the place. Yeah, it's been a weird year. And I, I think everyone and everything I've seen on Instagram and from different YouTube stories, I think everyone even in the North would say the same thing about what the weather's been, so... Yeah, I think so too. I think the, I think it's going to be a very interesting winter. Um, it, kind of exciting for me. I'm actually doing my first whitetail hunt this year. I guess I did sit in a stand a couple evenings in Montana four or five years ago when I was on an elk hunt um, and, and I couldn't make it out for the evening hunt, but I don't really consider that a whitetail hunt, but I'm going to legitimately head over to region eight. I'm only going in for three days, but I'm going to sit some blinds and, and, and work that, um, that bow season, that last, uh, two weeks of December. So I'm pretty excited about that. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for a cold snap there too, because from my limited understanding of that species, I think that, that it seems to be the ideal circumstances from what I understand. Yeah. It seems to be the more clothes you're wearing, your better your success is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited, man. I think it's, um, I, you know, I was, I was kind of humming and hawing about whether to do it. And I thought to myself, I just want a fun hunt. Like I do all these things where I beat the shit out of myself and I feel like I got to make them all super difficult. And then I was like, I kind of just want to be like, yeah, a little, maybe, uh, maybe a bit bored and fidgety, but like, I don't care. Like the idea of like just sitting in, in a stand for a couple days and, and seeing if I can get lucky. I think, you know, 
I, 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 the other reason is that I didn't do a whole lot of bow hunting this year. And I kind of feel like I, I really am a bow hunter at heart. And just with the hunts that have become available to me or, or that like I, I took the opportunity to do this year, they all ended up being rifle hunts. Um, and I do feel like I, I need to put some effort into getting a bow hunt. And there's really very little incentives for bow hunters in BC. Like we get the first nine days of September, which is like, so what? There's no real benefit other than no one else is shooting a rifle. So, but there's, but behaviorally speaking, they're, they're, they're not doing anything that's of, of any benefit. But this last, the, you know, I think December 1st to 20th, is bow only for whitetail in region eight. And I think that's a real benefit because I think there's still going to be some rut activity. They're still going to be moving around and nobody else is going to be shooting guns. So it should be, I'm, I, you know, I feel pretty optimistic that I'm going to bring something home. It'll be a fun hunt. There's no yeah. doubt about it. Yeah. yeah. And it seemed from all accounts from the people I talked to, like, I don't think the area is full of giants, but I think it's pretty, there's healthy populations so I, I, I think I should be seeing deer every day, which to me is half the fun. Like I kind of, I'm, I'm not really hung up on killing giant stuff. Like, don't get me wrong when I have the opportunity, I'd, I'd love to, but it's just, I'm still at the point in my, you know, hunting development where I still just get super excited about just getting in the mix kind of. And as long as they're reasonably mature, I'm, I'm a happy man. Yeah. Well, and I, I think most of my trips, I spend a lot of time looking at animals and trying to learn their behavior in order to hope to get lucky one day that it works out, right? Yeah, 100%. Okay, so let's, let, let's before we get into the, some of the details and some of the stuff that people can learn from, when, uh, when did you catch the cooking bug? Like, is this something purely that came apart as like grilling and meat stuff? Or was cooking something that you kind of felt drawn to early on? Oh, I would say it was early from what, you know, what my memory of it is, is I had a grandma who grew up with not a lot when she was a kid and she had this skill of making food from nothing and to learn and watch someone like that for so many years who could take I, I remember oxtail as an example. You go in the grocery store and there's always a bunch of it and no one buys it. And most of the time it's got the 50% off tail on it, right? And she would buy that and she would turn it into some sort of delicious stew or dish or, you know, something like that, a stir fry or whatever. She would just take it and turn it into something amazing. And you ask at dinner and you're like, what is this? And she would say, oh, well, it's this. And you're like, I don't even know what that is. And then, and then you go to the grocery store and you start looking and you're like, people buy that. Why would you even want to buy that? And then you never went hungry and you always had a delicious meal. And it came from someone who just had this skill of knowing how to cook something and taking nothing, you know, taking nothing, making something out of it, no recipes, no nothing. And it just, it turned out spectacular every time, you know? And so that, that's where it started for me. And, and I remember being you know, five, six years old. And I was at my grandma's house and she always had cooking magazines on the table. And she, she had this magazine and I was like best of bridge or better homes and gardens or one of those types of magazine. And they had this rib recipe in there. And it, it remember it calling for bourbon and, you know, you're eight years old. You don't even really know what that is. And, and so I said to my mom, I was like, you know, I would really like to make this, like, this is something I think I could do. And, you know, we just, I grew up with a gas powered grill, you know, so you, nothing fancy. And, and we made these ribs and everyone just couldn't believe how good they were. 
And, right. and so that's just where it started. And it just took off from there. Right. And, and then, you know, I found Traeger, I guess there's, or Traeger <laughs> found me, however you want to put it. So that's badass, man. I love it. And I love the oxtail. The only reason I know oxtails because I really like pho. And, oh, yeah. I, and I know that the stock for that is basically like a, like an oxtail stock, but I've never made anything from it myself. The one thing I find is that the longer I've been cooking myself, the more drawn I am to like, I call subprime cuts. Like yes. funnily enough, I think neck roast might be my favorite piece of meat on an animal, especially with wild game. Like it's so lean and it, I don't want to say it's, it's flavorful, but not yeah. in the same sense that like fattier or like connective tissue, you know, filled cuts. Like I just, I really like that. The, the you know, the kind of stuff that m most people don't get excited about, I think makes like the more interesting food to cook with. Well, and you could really develop a lot of flavor in those types of things, right? Because yeah. you need to take the time and really, you know, I, it sounds corny, but make love to it and spend the effort and, you know, to get it into something delicious. Right. And and I think at the end of the day, it's so rewarding. Right. If you if you can't take a tenderloin steak and make it delicious, you know, you probably can't boil water either, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but so. you're right. Like any idiot can take a ribeye and make it taste good as long yeah. as you don't overcook it. But taking something like, you know, a neck roast or I, I really like doing ossobuco. So taking something like a setter cut shank, like any of these, you know, cuts that have a lot of a lot more connective tissue and require a lot more um, care and attention. Like for me, it was the sous vide that really started to. Uh, like open my eyes that there was like, oh, there's like other ways where we can cook this stuff that it's like, and bear too. Like I love bear and you can't, because of trichinosis and stuff, you're kind of limited in some of the things. Like we're not going to have a medium rare bear steak. It's just not going to happen. So you need to look at, and, and yeah, okay. You can make ground bear, but like, if you want to do something even remotely interesting, we got to start looking at some alternative cooking methods so that we can you know, make it, you know, manage that risk that I, is probably not very high, but it's still something you need to pay attention, attention to when you're cooking. Yeah, no. And it's so, it's so true. Right. It, and it's all about taking something and making it what you want it to be. Right. Like, you know, something like a bear, I have never had great success with a bear to be totally honest with you. Yep. yep. Um, because once I tried bear when I was young and it left a bad taste in my mouth. So, but you know, it's something in the near future I'm going to go pursue because I have so many more great tools in my toolbox to try things out with. Right. Like how do I make that bear ham look delicious? You know, like the rivets out of Alberta, they take Man. bear and turn it into some crazy things on their Traeger. Right. Yeah. And everyone you talk to who eats it, it's just delicious. Right. So, you know, that's something I really want to pursue in the near future too. I really took it as a cha challenge to myself because I find other than maybe like some crazy exotics, bear is the thing that people have the most natural apprehension about. Yeah. Like for a non-hunter, when you bring up, especially in, in BC or Alberta, like it's pretty easy. Like, yeah, you want some backstraps? Like most people are open to wild game. Um, but when you start saying bear, people start getting really apprehensive. And I kind of took it on. Like I wanted to be able to prepare bear in a way that was not even like, not just where people would go, oh, that's, that's edible, but like legitimately that is a flavorful, like I would go out of my way to eat that piece of meat. Um, 
And the first thing I did, uh, the whole reason I got that trigger was to do those bear hams. And like, I don't mean to pat myself on the, on, on the back, but my God, man, probably I'm probably more proud of those bear hams than any other piece of meat I've cooked in my life. Especially because I like your whole make love to it. Like that shit took me a week, man. I had to make a brine. I had to, I had, I had to, I had to marinate them for a week or cure them for a week. I had to, I had to spin them every day and a half. Like, and then I had to figure out, like, there was just a lot of work and effort. And I think that love gets translated into it. And there's a guy, one of the owners of the gym that I go to, Big Ron, hopefully have him on the podcast soon. He's a prime example. I gave him some elk sausage maybe a year ago. And he hits me up and he's like, man, do you, do you have any more elk sausage? And I'm like, he's like, I'm happy to pay you for it. I'm like, well, A, you can't sell wild game in North America. So no, I can't take money for, for me. B, I'd love to give you some, but it's all gone. I said, I've got bear and you could, I could, the, the texting kind of paused momentarily. And I was like, oh yeah, here we go. And he's like, oh, I don't know about bear, man. And I did those two bear hams. And what I did is, um, I sliced some like really nice and thin um, and took it into them. And I'm like, just, just take this home and give it a go, man. You could do anything you want with it. You could chop it up and just put it with some rice. You could um, just treat it like any old ham. You could have a ham sandwich with it. You could do anything with it. And he texts me back two days later, just mind blown. He's just like, this is one of the most delicious things I've ever eaten. And I'm like, yeah, that's bear, man. And the one caveat I will make about bear, I steer clear of fall bear myself. I'm a spring bear guy. And I don't tend to go into areas where they're going to be eating a lot of fish. I don't buy into the fact that bear doesn't taste good, but any bear eating fish regularly before you, you harvest them. And especially in the fall, when you're talking like a rotting salmon run or something like that bear is going to taste foul. That's like dog food bear. So that, that I will totally own, but, um, a, a good spring bear handled correctly, I think can be a beautiful piece of meat. Well, and I think you proved it, right? Like with what your hams looked like and how they, you know, how they, you made them sound. It's like, well, this, this is something I got to go pursue. Right. Yeah. No, I'm excited. And I think I'm going to, I'm going to try and, and ham a whole hind quarter because the, the deer that we, the mule deer we pulled out wasn't a gigantic deer. And I'm even thinking maybe just the front, but again, that challenge of like leaving a little bit more connective tissue. And last time I was able to brine just by soaking it, but in the reading I've done, and I haven't cured a whole lot of things, you can also inject it. And I think yes. if I'm going to do a whole quarter, I'm better off to inject it because I'm going to be able like with the bone in the middle and maybe the scapula is still on there and a bunch of other stuff. I think that's really the only way to ensure like a really even distribution of cure throughout. I don't think just dunking that thing in a, in a, in a pail of brine is gonna, is gonna get it evenly distributed enough. I think that'll be your hard challenge with that is to get it to those bigger chunks of meat on those quarters, right? How do you get it yeah. into that deep center? So I think injecting makes complete sense. And if you played with injecting, you could see how it distributes through the meat when you do it. Right. So yeah. injecting is a great tool. Yeah. I've got the, I've got the stuff here. I love that. Um, one of my go-to shops is stuffers out in Aldergrove. Oh, nice. um, they're really great. Tons of great spices, lots of great like utensils and tools. And they had a really nice kind of meat injecting needle that I just recently picked up. Okay. So we start kind of cooking it at, at an, at an early age. Like everybody wants to know about the Traeger stuff. So also there's probably some people on here who don't even know what a Traeger is. And I think we use Traeger is a brand name, but we tend to use it like a verb. Like, like everybody's just going to understand what this thing is. 
why don't you take a little bit, take, take a moment and kind of educate people like what it is and why it's kind of like a unique, you know, it gives you some unique uh, tools or, or, or different ways to cook things that like a traditional barbecue or a traditional just smoker wouldn't necessarily give you. Yeah. So Traeger is a pellet smoker. Um, it's, so it uses pellets. So I believe Traeger in their line now has six different types of pellets. So you can use anything like from cherry, oak, hickory, um, pecan, maple. Um, uh, what else do they have? I think they have a couple signature blends, a turkey blend for cooking turkeys. They have a wild game blend. Um, so you can use the pellets as your cooking tool. So it's electric, but then it actually just burns the wood to keep your heat. And there's a little fan in there that blows it around to keep the heat. So you could cook anywhere from 180 degrees up to 500 degrees on the new Traegers. And so you can do everything from bake, smoke, broil, grill, um, braise, there's lots of options that you can do with it. So it's, it's not just a smoker and it's not just a grill. It's like, you know, it truly does everything. So I think too, the other element that people need to understand is the accuracy with accuracy with which it holds temperature. Like, yeah, okay. There might be a thermostat on your barbecue, but you can't dial it in to the degree like you can with a Traeger. That was a thing that I don't think I'd ever fully appreciated before I got mine. I was like, this is like my oven. Like, yeah, okay, it's going to fluctuate when I open and close the lid and just like, like it, there's always a little bit of fluctuation, but the fact that you can dial it to 350 and 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 it will go to 350 and it'll maybe bounce around five degrees in there. But other than that, it really stays locked in. Yeah. And it, and it does such a great job of that. And you can, you know, you can have it bounced in so many different ways. And then the other thing with Traegers now is you can do more in the smoke side is now they have settings like super smoke where you can put more smoke in where they close exhaust ports on the back of the Traeger to get more smoke into them. So it kind of does everything in that tool and it's like your oven, right? But then it's still a smoker, but then it's still a grill. So, you know, it really is the full meal deal, I believe. You know, it was hilarious and I don't know why I never clued in before. So I do meal prep, bodybuilding is a bit of a hobby. And I, you know, a lot, there's lots of times I'm like trying to cook 15 chicken breasts and, uh, I normally do them on the barbecue. And to be honest, I tend to overcook chicken. Like if I got any sin as a grill man, I, I overcook chicken because I'm probably paranoid of undercooked chicken. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I had the trigger, a, the way it smoked it, I think I put it on at like 350, and I just put the meat thermometer right in it. And I'm like, I'll just take it out when I'm, when I'm supposed to take it out. Um, that was like the, and it's just store-bought shit chicken breast, like Savon's 12 bucks a pack stuff. But like yeah. that was, and what I did is I, um, I coated it in that, uh, the poultry. It's not even oh. really like a rub. Cause it's more, it's more flaky. Like it's almost a bit of a crust that you get on there. But anyways, I just used the Traeger poultry stuff and, you know, douse both sides heavily and then, and then put it on there at, at 350. And that is some of the most delicious. And that to me is like, it's just a really high quality barbecue at that point with like a little bit of the benefit of the, of the smoke. Yeah. Well, and it's funny that you say you overcook chicken, right? Cause you think how many times have you just gone to someone's house and, Oh, we're having chicken for dinner. It's on the barbecue. Right. And you know, now it's to the point you almost have to politely decline because you're still <laughs> yeah. used to having good chicken. Yeah. And it's just like, and, and you don't want to be rude. Right. But you're just like, Oh, you know, I'm okay. I'm going to have to pass on this. Right. Like, yeah. and you'll go throw the same chicken breast on at home on your Traeger and you'll be like, yeah, that wasn't going to come from that guy's grill. No, no, hundred percent. 
So, so how do you approach? Yeah. I don't even know where to start really, but when you're thinking about cooking, like what's getting you excited or what are some things that you're into right now? Or, you know, where would be a good place to start talking about how you like to cook on the Traeger? Well, this is a good question because I've never thought about this. And, you know, where I cook on the Traeger is everything. You know, we have an oven in our house and we haven't turned it on in probably 900 days. We don't use the oven. We All we use is the Traeger. So it's not, you know, we don't think about, you know, my wife and I, but, you know, we don't think about using the oven. We just think about what we're cooking on the Traeger as the oven. So, you know, lasagnas go there. We've even done a cheesecake on it, right? So you just take whatever you want and cook it on there. So, you know, for example, we had chicken breast tonight with a Greek salad, right? So we kind of made like a Greek themed meal and it was just super easy. Throw the chicken breasts on. I rubbed some Greek rub on there, a little bit of, you know, that Greek seasoning, like from clubhouse that you get at the grocery store yep. with a little lemon juice, just tossed it on there, cooked it till 165 and then pulled it off. But to me, the biggest thing is when you're cooking on the Traeger, I, I know this is going to be on a little bit of a tangent, but you got to cook to temperature. Don't okay. cook to time. It's it's that everyone has that old school mentality of, okay, I got the steaks on there at, oh, what temperature? Because we already touched on that. Is it 400, 450, 425? We're going to cook it for six minutes aside, and then they're going to be done. And it's just like, you know, from hunting or anything like that, every animal's had a different life. Right. And so- you have to cook that animal for how the life has been, right? So you don't know how that's been. You don't know if the chicken from down the road has lived the same life as the chicken from the large farm, you know, in floodridden Abbotsford right now, right? So you you so you have you have two different things. So you could take the same chicken breast, same size, same weight, and it could cook and it could need five minutes longer to get to 165. Right. See, so I love that you're saying this because this took me years, man. I thought it was cheating. Like, and then you watch world class chefs. You do not see people cooking meat without taking a temperature. Like, once you start paying attention to how legitimate chefs are cooking meat, like everybody's taking temperature of 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 meats. That's that's how it's done. And that that was a that changed everything for for, for me. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because your temperature gauge is your only real friend that you have there because you don't know, you know, cutting into it. That's just such a, in my opinion, I know. you just yeah. take everything from that one piece of meat and you dry it out and who gets stuck with it. It's a chef, hundred percent, right? you know, so then you got a, you got a bad cut and everyone else gets a good cut. So if you just, if you do that 165 for chicken or wherever you like your beef, right? Like, you know, if you probe it or your poultry or your pork, right? If you just do that temp check, it's going to change your game. And especially, right? Like, yes, a Traeger is important, but that thermometer that you use to check meat is just as important, if not more important, right? It, it, it is, it has to be that next thing you buy, if not at the same time when you're buying your grill. Yeah. You know what? We got a little bit ahead of it too. And I know we're both Traeger guys. So this is going to be a little bit um, like, you know, brand biased, yeah. but what kind of options do people have? I think I'm correct in that there's three, I don't want to say brands, three models. And then there's yeah. kind of some variation within those models, but, but maybe that would help too, because there's going to be like the single guy, the guy with the small family, the guy with the big family, like what should people look for if they're thinking about getting one? 
Well, I think a lot of it, I think the first place that I always, like people always ask me, well, what grill should I get? And my first question to people is always, who do you plan to cook for? Are you a person who just cooks for your family, you know, of three or four people and that's all you ever cook for? Are you an entertaining person? Because I quickly found out that as soon as, you know, people start hearing that, oh, you're cooking all this amazing food, you know, you're, everyone wants in on it, right? So then you have to start hosting parties and functions and people ask you to bring stuff. So then all of a sudden your, your grill just needs to be bigger and bigger and bigger, right? So that's the first question. And then the next question obviously is like, what do you really plan on doing with it? right? Right. Do you plan on, do you plan on using it as your everyday tool or is it just going to be a smoker for your pulled porks, your briskets, your bare hands, your deer hams, that type of thing? Or is it going to be, you know, just quick chicken breasts? You know, that's where I would go next, right? Because then you're going to want probably a grill that'll go a little hotter, a little faster. So there's the three series. There's the Pro, the Ironwood, and the Timberline. Uh, the Pro being the base model. So that one goes, I think it's from 180 to 450 for temperature cooking. And then it's very basic. Um, you know, it has all the has the Wi-Fi technology so you could cook with it using your phone. Um, and then the Ironwood can go to 500 degrees as well as the Timberline. They have more insulation. They have the super smoke setting. Um, they have, and then it just comes to grill space as you go through the lines as well, right? So the, there's multiple sizes in each models, and then they go up in size. So the Timberline 1300 being the biggest one, and it's got 1300, I think they say square inches of grilling surface. So I've seen six turkeys put on a 1300. Whoa. Yeah. I wanted to do a turkey bad, man. So good. Yeah. Uh, turkey was one of the things that really... It was my arch nemesis for a while, and now I'm a brine guy. I'm a 24 hour before, yep. And I, it took me years, man. And it was this was one of those things. I grew up with dry turkey, like you would dread it every year. It's like, what do I got to douse this shit in to make it palatable? And that was just how the turkey was cooked every year. (laughs) Like I was like, and nobody ever said anything about it. In fact, I think that's people just you hear people say, "I don't really like turkey; it's dry." And I'm like, bro. The turkey is not dry, my friend. You know what I mean? Like someone cooked the shit out of it. That's why the turkey is dry. And that was really, that was one of my kind of really big goals is like, I want to cook a turkey that is like beautiful and delicious. And when you're, you're slicing through it, the juice is still coming out of it but it's not pink when you get to the middle and you get close to the bone. And it's a very, it's a very doable, like it's not even difficult once you actually like, figure out what you're doing. But as soon as I saw that, I'm like, oh yeah, there's a turkey's getting thrown on this guy real soon. Yeah. And brining is the key to a turkey. I believe, right? I I think so. It's such a complicated piece of meat. Like you, you need some leeway there and that, that brine and that extra salt and that extra water really just, it buys you a bit of leeway. And otherwise it's a, it's a real tough, I think you're, you're, you're making it pretty difficult to yourself to, to cook it perfectly and not have it go dry on you. Well, and, and it gets back to that whole thing. You don't know how that turkey lived, right? right. So you're, when you get them at the, and they all say Lily Dale at the store, they yeah. all look the same, right? They all got, oh, you're, this is a couple kgs different in weight, right? So you're like, mm, I don't know what's one's going to go. Let's hope this does, right? Yeah. And yeah. I, brining turkeys is phenomenal. And, you know, hopefully you like doing it when you do one, hopefully you do one for Christmas or something like that. And, you know, 
then you'll be the guy who brings the turkeys, right? You'll be the yeah. turkey guy. And then, you know, you're always going to have the turkey and then it, it becomes less of a problem. Yeah. And it was funny. You mentioned like, I really did turn into that guy in my family that like when there's a big family function, it's at my house and I do the cooking and seeing how excited people get to come over. And there's normally like a big, you know, I remember I did a beef Wellington one year for Christmas and that was another like really big moment. Like that's a very technical thing to, to cook. And it came out perfect. Like the pastry was fluffy and the little, like the mustard sauce was layered perfectly. And the, um, it was still pink in the middle. Like, and it's just, I think that's part of like the people who end up like cooking are, are you like kind of bringing that joy to people, like being that guy that like, yeah, I put that on the table and just watching how happy everybody gets, you know, eating that meal. Well, and I, there's nothing more rewarding to me, right? You know, yeah. I, I just recently did a family get together and I put some briskets on and I cooked them about 16 hours, right? And and you cut that piece of brisket and, and you just, you know, people, you watch their face and it's just like, I did not know something could taste that good. And you get that inside, you're just like, yes, I nailed that, right? And, you know, everyone, you know, you look at a piece of brisket and you're like, what am I going to do with that, right? Yeah. Recently- through this flooding, I saw Safeway threw a whole bunch of briskets out on the freezer because it was like probably one of the only cuts of meat they had yeah. in the back. And no one wants it, right? And I, I'm just in there and I'm like, well, is it hoarding if you load up your grocery cart with all these briskets? Because I know what I can do with them, right? Yeah. And and brisket just, you know, that's something that changed my cooking, right? It's okay. just you you take that big piece of meat and you turn it into this amazing thing with bark and the smoke ring and it just falls apart in your hands. And, and it's the most rewarding thing you could do. And that's what the Traeger or I say any good grill, but Traeger to me can do for you. Right. It just changes it all. So let's get the funny thing is I'm cooking a brisket this, this Saturday. So my, my daughter's birthday is this week and we're doing like a family birthday thing Saturday. And then the, you know, school birthday thing on, on, on Sunday. Also, my wife is Jewish and Hanukkah is this week. So Saturday is like, and the funny thing is brisket is actually a very like prominent meat in Jewish cooking, which I never thought it was until I married a Jewish lady. And I was like, well, this works out for me. Like (laughs) I got no, we could eat brisket all the time. They tend to do more like slow cooked, lots of sauce, still delicious, but, but just a different methodology. But I was like, Oh, this will be perfect. Cause I got the Traeger now brisket kind of fits in right across the board. So let's talk actual technique. So I've got my, I've got my big, beautiful brisket. I haven't even looked up a recipe yet. So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm open, but how would you, what's your preferred method with the brisket? Well, I guess I'll ask you two questions. Is it a packer brisket or is it just a flat? I I actually don't know the difference between the two. So I got it from a, from a butcher. I originally, I screwed up. I always overbuy. So when I originally went to the, maybe six months ago, we were having something and I was going to do a brisket. So I'm like, yeah, give me whatever. And he goes to ring it up and he's like, yeah, $189. And I was like, what did I, I'm like, my wife is going to freak out. Um, <laughs> I'm like, what did I just do? And the thing he hands me is just like, yeah. so I cut that in half and I'm left with probably like a nine to 10 inch by nine inch square. And maybe like, maybe three inches thick. Like it's a pretty good slab of meat. Yeah. So I guess 
I'll I'll kick it back a little bit. Okay. And when you buy a brisket, you want to buy a packer brisket. Okay. So, so there's two parts to a brisket. There's a point, which is that big fat end. Yep. And it's a little bit thicker. And then there's the flat, which is that real, it goes down to a skinnier end. Okay. And then they should have on the one side, there should be a fat cap. Yep. So you want that fat cap and yep. you can trim that according because, you know, brisket, brisket and barbecue, especially barbecue brisket, have a lot of different theories about it. Guys from Texas think you got to cook it fat side up. Some people think you cook fat side down. It all depends on what you think. Okay. I cook fat side down. So what you do is you take that brisket, you're going to want to trim it off. So every little bit of fat on the surface, you're going to want to remove because that's what gives you that bark. And that's what helps get your smoke ring in. Okay. So if you if you don't take the fat off the meat side, you're going to lose all your rub or whatever you put on. It's, gonna, it's just going to fall off when the melt rent, or when the fat renders. Do you leave it. the fat cap on the bottom or do you take yeah. it off too? No, you leave it on. on okay, so fat cap on the bottom is okay, but the kind of around the edges and the top, you'd remove yeah. surface fat. Yeah, you're going to want to remove that. And okay. then when you cook like a traditional, like a barbecue brisket, some people like some people ask for the fatty side or the lean side. So the fatty side comes from the point or the lean side's the flat. And okay. the people, have you ever had burnt ends or have you heard about yeah, burnt ends? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yep. The burnt ends come from the point. So that's okay. the fattier side. So- okay. But what you do is you want to take it, you want to trim it up nice. You want to make your brisket aerodynamic. So as weird as it sounds, when you cook in a Traeger, it's kind of a convection cook. Most yeah. smoke this way. So you're going to want to get the smoke rolling over top of your of your brisket, right? So you're going to want it so it flows nicely over it. So you want to cut nice and aerodynamic, no rough edges, you know, nice clean lines. And then you're going to want to, you're going to want to rub it, I would say. So you're going to want to put whatever you want on it. One thing with brisket is it's so forgiving with your rub, I find, because it's such a hearty piece of meat. And when you get it, you're only going to eat a little bit of that outside bark. So right. you're, don't be afraid to rub it. Okay. Like, and don't be afraid to go a little bit over if you think it's like over the top, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, traditional, if you want to go traditional, salt, pepper, garlic is pretty traditional. Salt and pepper is traditional. Um, or you can do whatever you want. If you want to buy rub or you got Traeger rubs, you know, you can do like, I got a bunch of Traeger rubs. I, I think I got most of them. They sent me a big box of them. Um, I'm trying to remember what most of them are, but I remember th even thinking one, there might be like prime, a beef barbecue. I think so. Yeah. Prime ribs, really good. The coffee rubs, really good. Okay. Those I like on brisket as well. So just okay. rub them down okay. and then you're going to want to throw it in the grill. So, you're going to want to take that brisket and you're going to want to be like, okay, I want to eat at, let's say five o'clock dinner time. Yep. So you're going to make sure you're pulling that brisket off around three o'clock between three, three 30. You okay. want to give it an hour to two hours to rest. Huh? Okay. So that's a big thing. So let's say you're going to do, you're going to want to cook it at two twenty-five on super smoke. So you're going to throw it in at, let's say 5 AM. Okay. You're going to throw that brisket in there. Always remember meat cool to the grill. It takes on more smoke. The meat is cool or the grill is cool? No, meat is cool. Okay. So, so you want that. So you can do your rubbing and your, like your trimming, but you don't want that meat room temperature when you put it on the grill. Okay. So you could almost put, like put it in addition, like put it back in the fridge or whatever after you've yeah. rubbed it. Or if you just came out of the fridge, you could rub it and put it right on, but you wouldn't let it sit there for half an hour or whatever. Okay. You're, you're going to get more smoke into it that way. Oh, okay. So 
So then you throw it on the grill. So let's say five o'clock around 165 is that magic number. You're going to want to pull it out and wrap it either in pink butcher paper okay. or tin foil. Okay. And then when you, then you're going to want to wrap it back in that and make sure you wrap it tight. So there's no extra room. And all that does is that just helps that last bit of fat in the meat break down. Okay. Because your meat's only going to take as much smoke as it's only going to take as much smoke as it can take. Okay. And then you're going to wrap it and then you're going to throw it back on the grill and pull it around 205. Well, 203 to 205. The best trick I ever learned about brisket was take a toothpick and put it in room temperature butter. And how that toothpick feels going in that room temperature butter is how that meat probe should feel going in that brisket. That's pretty good, man. So you could, you could feel when it's done, right? You, and you just start checking it, you know? So you're getting an internal temp of 203 to 204? Yes, exactly. Okay. 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 And, and I, I've been fortunate enough to cook some Wagyu and sometimes you're finishing those around 210, 212. Really? Yeah. So, so they, is that because there's more fat? You're taking them to a higher temperature? Higher temperature. Yeah. So they're fully rendered. Okay. So you get, so, it, and it's all about that feel, you know, it takes a bit of time to get that feel, but you just want to play with the root, the butter in the house, just stick your toothpick in and out of it. And then you'll get that feel. And then you should be able to do that. But it's around 203 to 205 will be that. And then you're going to want to give it the, the hour and a half or two hours from that point. Yes. So then what I would do is I pull, I open it up, open up the wrap, let that initial steam come off it and then throw it in a cooler. So if you got a Yeti or something like that, like a good cooler, good insulation, you throw it in there and let it rest. And then you just like wrap it back up while it's resting and then pull it out. And then you'll just want to slice as soon as you're going to eat because brisket dries out really fast when it hits room. So as soon as you want to eat, you just pull that out and then you're just going to want to slice it and then serve. Man, I'm getting hungry. Yeah. That's great, man. That's perfect. That's exactly, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And I think it's going to be, I think I got a good enough size piece of meat for everybody too. It's funny. There's not a lot of meat. Like my wife's a vegetarian. I don't have a big family. So it's me, my wife, and my daughter, my wife's a vegetarian. So it's like me and a six-year-old child for most of our family meals. So I don't get a chance to cook like the big fun pieces of meat a whole lot. So, and even when the whole family comes over, there's still only a half a dozen kind of meat eaters. So we should be, we should be good to go. Yeah. Oh, and you might have a little bit extra for the next day, but chill. I try to. And then the, but everybody wants to take a little bit home. And it's funny. I, I always think I've overbought. And then I am by the time I, I like to send everybody home with at least a meal or two for, yeah. for the next day that, and then, yeah. So, Especially cause they don't get to eat stuff like that regularly. So cool enough. I, last time we got a moose, I was able to, uh, our butcher who does our moose for us, he was able to save a brisket for me. Wow. So we, we brought the moose out whole. Um, being in the forest industry, we bring some things that most people wouldn't bring when they go hunting. But you know, so I got a, I did a moose brisket, and I finished it at one seventy eight. So just because so much less fat in it, it was just ready to pull at that temperature. It was just that feel was there, and it was ready to pull. I um, I put lots of butter in that, and lots of garlic. Like I used some bacon and wrapped it in some bacon as well to do the moose brisket, and it turned out pretty delicious. Have you, and this is a, a shout out to Mark. Um, he'll know who he is when he's, when he's listening. He, he, he brought this up. Have you ever messed with call fat and wild game? 
No, I haven't. Me neither. I saw Ronella do it the one time. I've never been in a position because normally I'm in the back country and it's late and it's like the last thing in the world I'm thinking of doing is like trying to save call fat. But Mark was like, you can just go to the butcher and they will give you call fat. Um, and for anybody who's listening who doesn't know, call fat is basically like, uh, it almost looks like fishnet. Um, and it is a sheet of this kind of like stretchy, thin, fibrous fat. Does it line this? Does it go around the edge of the stomach or does it kind of, is it that whole internal cavity? Anyway, it, 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 it's, it's in the guts of the animal and what you can do for, for other people who aren't aware of this wild game tends to be very lean and fat is your friend when you're cooking. Um, it introduces moisture, it introduces flavor. It kind of helps things from overcooking. If you've ever tried to cook a, like a backstrap steak off of like a deer or something, like you can overcook that thing in the time it takes you to turn around and, and go check the weather. Um, so, um, one of the ways to get around that, like what you're saying is introducing, um, an external form of fat in order to, to keep that moisture up and keep all that other stuff. So what he, and he was saying, he's had very good success with, with wrapping pieces of wild game in. And again, I think a method like the Traeger, cause if you try to do that on like a flamed barbecue, you're just going to end up burning that call fat to a crisp where I think that like slow and low Traeger like method is really going to, you're going to be better off with something like that. Yes. No, I, and it makes sense. And I've just never done it yet. And I, it will, it will get done. Yeah. I want to as well. Okay. I want to, I want to keep us moving because we could, we could, we, we'd be here all night talking meat and we're definitely going to need to to do a round two of this at some point because there's other big pieces of meat I want to, I want to touch on as well. But I think something that might benefit people more, and it was one of the Instagram questions. Can you share one of your favorite, like really non-traditional things? Cause that's the other thing. Like you talked about the cheesecake and you talked about the lasagna, like when people think trigger, they think brisket 100% or they think pulled pork 100%. But to see some of the shit that you've, you've pulled off um, and some of the other stuff that some of the other more popular trigger guys I follow have pulled off is just like, I wouldn't have ever thought to like cook something like that on the grill. Yeah. Um, if you're going to go like a quick thing, which I, I can never get enough of is trigger nachos. They're like okay. one of my favorite, just like, you know, throw it on the grill, give it some smoke for 10 minutes, crank it up, melt that cheese and good to go. Um, that would be one of my favorite, like quick, easy. Why would you put that in the oven when you can add flavor from the wood? I, I don't get that. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I really have this fascination with baking cookies on the Traeger. <laughs> All right. I love it. Like, like and just simple things, simple chocolate chip, but you like, why does this chocolate chip cookie taste like so much more? Right. Like it just has so much more flavor. And, you know, based on whatever type of wood is how harsh your smoke's going to get into it. But when you just throw a cookie on there, you just throw some cookies, whip up a quick batch, throw them on there. there it takes nothing to do it. And it's just like this cookie is just so much better because it's not smoky, but it just has more flavor. And to me, they feel more moist. 
Right. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it just tastes, they taste more moist to me. I'm a big fan of like a baked good on the Traeger. I really enjoy them. Okay. So I have a very specific question about this because I experimented with an apple crisp. Um, and my, it was okay. I'm going to give myself a B plus. The flavor was outstanding. There's two things that I have an, an idea how to address, but first things first, I found the cooking instructions were a little bit off in that I, I, they were almost 50% too short in my opinion. And somebody brought it up to me that in their experience, because we're in the Pacific Northwest, a lot of the stuff we're reading, we need to up, up the times quite a bit because it, just the humidity level is higher. It's colder. It's not, we're not grilling in Texas. So, yeah. and, and while an oven is an oven is an oven because it's in your house and it's like around this moderate, moderated environment, the Traeger's not the same thing. It's actually a pretty thin double yeah. wall. Like even on the iron ironwood, which is a double wall, it's like you, you are still subject to the circumstances that you find yourself in. So what's been your experience with that? And do you tend to like manually adjust, um, cooking times for certain things, knowing the, the, the area that you're living in? Yeah. And moisture is a big factor there. Right. And, and sometimes, you know, the one thing I would say about here is how damp of an environment we live in. Sometimes your pellets get a bit of dampness into them. And so that moisture just comes in. And I think it, doesn't have that dry heat sometimes you want when you're at those higher temperatures. So sometimes I find with that, if your grill's not clean enough, like just taking a vacuum, vacuuming out the bottom of your grill, that will make a difference too, right? Just standard grill maintenance. But I always sometimes like on a pie or something, I'll probably go 10 degrees higher and the same amount of time. That's, I've found that to be a good adjustment. Um, And then you kind of just have to look and play with it a little bit, right? You know, but if if you start with something simple, let's just say a cookie, if a, if you eat a raw cookie, it's not going to hurt you, yeah. right? So if, if you say, okay, eight minutes is my magic number at 375, and so that's where you like your cookies, okay, you can adjust that if you normally cook 400 for seven minutes, right? Just take that factor in or what, however you like. You know, I've just found that I have to play with it, and every day is so different here. Right. I think that's part of the art form of it. That's also what I like about it is that it does like require a little bit of like care and attention. And it's like, it's not this perfect device that's going to do everything exactly the same every time. There's like, it's got character and it's even as you break it in, I've noticing that like, as I use my grill more, it starts to behave a little bit differently. I've always really believed in like the flavor of a grill. Like I I don't like a new barbecue. I like that barbecue that's like been broken in and it's got some fat and some grease and like, you know, the, the grill has, has kind of, you know, been cured. And I do find that like each grill kind of carries its, its own flavor. Cause I I definitely noticed that the other thing I think too, is like uh, ingredient selection. I kind of take pride in like my mashed potatoes and you really have to pick like there's potatoes that make good mashed potatoes and there's potatoes that, that don't. And it depends how you're doing it. There's potatoes that I would, I would never boil and then mash. And then there's other potatoes that I think that's totally acceptable method. And and I haven't done a lot of apple crisp and I bought honey crisp apples and I was talking to my mother about it later. And she's like, you didn't pick the eye because that's a very hard apple to begin with. So the, to get that apple to like break down and truly caramelize, she's like, you're already fighting a bit of an uphill battle. 
And one of the things I thought, what I'm going to do next time, because it, it had a bit of smoke, but I'm like, I want more smoke in this. And there's two things I'm going to do. I'm going to peel the apples, leave them whole, and just smoke those for like 10, 15 minutes, yeah. just on their own, just to get that process started. Like, let's just start breaking down and then, then slice them up and wedge them up in there. And I think instead of, I mean, I think it had me at like 350 or 375. And what's the super smoke shut off at? Is it 220 or something? 225. 225. So I think what I would do is maybe super smoke it at 225 for like the first half hour or something. Like just take some time, let the smoke really get in there and then bring it up to that 375. And maybe at that, I would even probably next time not worry so much about time and just keep an eye on the apples, like pick a corner. And when those same thing, maybe just grab a toothpick. And when those apples started to get to the point where I could just slide that toothpick in and out, I would know that's where I wanted, you know, that apple crisp to be. Yeah. So interesting enough, I just did a cookie recipe lately and I took the, their, uh, peanut butter chocolate chip oatmeal cookie And I took the oats at first, spread them out on a cookie sheet. And then I just smoked those for 10 minutes. Okay. Like 180. And then I let them cool and then threw them in my cookie dough. And, and then your, my cookie had that smoke flavor, but I just cooked it at like 400 degrees, the cookie. And so you got that smoke flavor, but you, you just used your grill just as a normal oven then. Yeah. I like that too, because some things like a cookie where you're worrying about it rising and falling, you don't really want to mess around with like going in warm and then bringing it up to temperature. So I think that's a great idea to get more smoke in there and yet still, you know, baked goods are sensitive and they need, they, you know, they need to be treated a a certain way. There's somebody else had a specific. I got one, one more thought for you. No, please do. Yeah. Hit me. Um, one of the most underrated cuts and one of my probably most favorite to cook would be a tri-tip. Okay. So, and that's just, hilarious because I actually posted your tri-tips when yes. I did the, the Q&A and I didn't know that, but I was yeah. like going through it. I'm like, that's a nice picture, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they're just, it's just part of the sirloin. So it's just one of the tips of the sirloin and it's just a roast. So they're pretty thin. They're about inch, inch and a half thick and they're about two and a half to like three and a half pounds is what you get to try to, you have to go to the butcher and you have to make sure your butcher is someone who still cuts a whole half in store. It can't okay. just be someone who has like kind of pre-portioned quarters or stuff. It has to bring in full halves and then they'll cut you out a tri-tip. They're reasonably cheap, you know, like, cause again, that's not a great cut. Like you wouldn't cook it like a steak. Like it's not like a high end piece of meat, is it? No, it's not, but you can, I think you can make it better than a tenderloin. Right, right. Okay. So, so, and then what you do is you just take it, smoke it till you get to that internal temperature you like. So if you like medium, medium rare, like 120 to 130 internal temperature, pull it off, wrap it in tinfoil, crank your grill up to 500 degrees. Sometimes if you want, throw a cast iron in there with some garlic, some butter, that type of thing, and then sear all the sides. So you get that nice crust on the end. And to me, that is like, hands down, one of the best cuts you could ever do. That's one of my favorites to bring to hunting camp. Okay. So this is interesting Um, because much like the sous vide, there's kind of this argument to like pre-sear or reverse sear. And so would you say as a general rule with the Traeger, you tend to prefer the reverse sear, like kind of seal that up and put the crust on it after you've done your, your basic cook? 
Yes, because you if you want that smoke flavor, you're only ever going to get that in at the start. You're not going to get it in at the at the end, right? Oh, right, because you're you're essentially sealing up the meat um, yes, if you sear exactly. it, and then nothing's yeah. ever gonna. Because that's the whole point of on a traditional grill, you you don't want the juices to get out. So people yeah. are going to sear it at first, lock in all the juices, slow cook it afterwards. Instead, we want to get the smoke in, so we're going to slow cook it first and then yeah. sear it when we're done. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard the reverse sear put as the redneck sous vide. <laughs> I like it. I like yeah. it. It it it. I love that sous vide, man. Like I've done some really fun stuff, like thirty six and forty eight hour cooks. And what was interesting, and then that really helped me define the difference, like how you need to treat different pieces of meat. Yeah. You can't put like a like a nice roast in the sous vide. Um, nice meat that doesn't have all that connective tissue. Like it almost turns mealy. Like it, it, it doesn't like to be slow cooked like that. And I think it has something to do with the proteins. Cause I think they break down too quickly or too easily. And you, you, you actually start losing like the structure of the meat itself. And it doesn't have a nice mouthfeel. Like I took a really expensive piece of meat one time and I was like, this is just shit. Like I, it does not taste good. Yeah. And and it's that slow, like you're, you're overcooking it to what it is, right? Like right. it's like taking oats and making oatmeal out of it, right? Like yeah. you just overdid it. A hundred percent. The thing you're going to have to get started on playing with is smoking to the sous vide. Oh yeah. So I, I've played with it a little bit, but you, you like take a chunk of meat, you smoke it, use some curing salt and then you sous vide it. Like I've heard it done a lot with pork belly. I've only played with it a little bit okay. and then you UV it and then just pull it out and then just like hot and fast in a skillet just to crisp it up at the end. And yeah. it really has a lot of flavor and the fat's nice and rendered and you get good flavor out of it. That's interesting. I got to play with that yeah. for sure. Cause that was my favorite way to do asapuco as well was in the, was in the sous vide. Cause they don't, sometimes they don't hold together real well. And the fact that you just chuck them all in a bag, put the sauce right in there and then just cook the shit out of it for 36 hours. Like yeah. it always came, came out great, but to be able to smoke those first, like before they're all falling apart, it, you know, just stick them on the grill, smash some smoke into those and then bring them out like that. That's very intriguing. Yeah. Um, Okay, so try tips. Got to put them on there. Um, okay, so I guess he. I guess this question wasn't about um, about baking. I don't know why I remembered a baking question. Um, th this isn't really a Traeger question. I've kind of played around with as well, and, and and maybe you're you feel comfortable answering this. Maybe you don't. But do you have any recommendations for how long to hang meat, um, and any best practices as far as like? freezing or, or post process handling? Uh, that, that, that's a controversial topic. All um, right. I, I don't, you know, lots of people have very hard feelings on this, right? Um, I brought up my grandpa earlier when he used to shoot a deer, he used to hang it three weeks in the shed out back and then, then they would butcher it. Right. Yep. Nowadays people don't, necessarily like there to be a little bit of flavor to it so you know I, i'm indifferent either way dry aging is something that's phenomenal right like taking it and you know throwing it in a fridge with some air movement and then you know dry aging it for you know 21 days 28 days that type of thing or even wet aging it you know i've heard nothing but 
you know, when you buy full prime rib is to look at that kill date on the package because they're all cryovacked at kill date and then take that and you want to cook them, you know, between the 45 and 60 day mark is right where you want to cook a prime rib, hmm. uh, you know, and that's a wet age because they're in that package, right? So don't freeze them, just throw them right in the fridge and then get them to that, to that 45 to 60 day mark and then cook them. So I'm indifferent either way, but you totally have to do what you're comfortable with. Right. And it's, you know, I don't have an issue necessarily pulling something out and letting it thaw a little bit and change my mind and then refreezing it. Whereas some people have an issue with that. So I've never been sick or had been sick from something like that. But I think sometimes those things can happen if you don't cook them to temperature. That's also what I have. I, I also, I've done a lot of like refreezing, especially having a small family. I'll take too much stuff out or what happens a lot to me is I take stuff out on like a Wednesday or a Thursday. And then I forget that I don't do a whole lot of weekend cooking because we're so busy with the kid and stuff. I'm probably going to order takeout a couple nights and then it, you know, it gets to be Saturday after I'm like, I better put this back in something. And I've never had an, an adverse thing. The other thing, and I've heard a couple people talk about this, is kind of like freezer aging. Like a lot of people are afraid to let things... And I've met a couple guys who don't want to eat their meat until it's sat in the freezer for six months. Like yeah. they really feel like it, it, it breaks it down a little bit. It starts to work it in a little bit. And then it's just, a, it just eats better. Those bear hams I made were in my freezer for two years. Yeah. Um, and you'd never know it. You know what I mean? Like, in fact, one of the corners was even like the, 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 the butcher paper was even uh, like, it had just got busted open from like sitting in a freezer for two years. And yeah. after I wrapped it up, there was like a little dry piece of yeah. meat. That was it. Like shaved off a quarter of an inch and it, you would yeah. never would have known. Like there was nothing wrong with that meat. And I think that's the other thing people get a little too paranoid about, like, and, and you you can wrap meat no problem in just butcher paper and you will get literally multiple years as long as it's treated properly in the freezer. And I think people are a little too conservative in their freezer times as well. Like if something's been sitting in there for a year, they start to get worried about it. And if it's wrapped right, like go to town. I've eaten multiple two, three-year-old packages of meat that came out of my freezer with no issues and tasted fine. I just cooked a moose roast from 2017 last month. Yeah. And it, it, there was nothing wrong with it. Nothing. You know, and there I, was we should no- limit those com- those comments to meat. Fish is not the same by any yeah. stretch of the imagination. But I, I I agree wholeheartedly for meat. You can be really aggressive with with freezing times. Yeah, and and if you're if you're questioning it, don't be afraid to do something like turn it into a jerky, right? Or or a stew or something like that, where you, you know, like something where you get a little more flavor into it. Don't be afraid to do that. I, I struggle to hear about people who, you know, throw meat out or give meat to their dogs. Cause it's been in the freezer for a year. It, it, to me, that's just such a waste. Right. And I, I love your idea of the stew too. And the other thing that I tell people is like, don't be afraid of your slow cooker. Cause like you can take some pretty, like not great cuts of meat, you cube it up in one inch cubes. And I, I literally just buy a lot of those sauces. Some of those clubhouse sauces and marinades from save on are great, man. And you like quarter up a couple onions, chop up a couple potatoes, chuck it in there for eight hours with like a little bit of marinade. And it's like, you're going to have a real hard time screwing that up. Like anything you put in there is going to come out tasting pretty good. And it's super low maintenance. Throw it, it takes 10 minutes, throw it on in the morning, forget about it. You come home at night and dinners. It's like a one pot meal. You're done. Or, or your Dutch oven in your Traeger. This is, yeah, I'm going to have to start experimenting with that because that's how I did, 
I finally got a Dutch oven. And the last time I did a brisket, I did it in the, because I wanted to experiment with the difference between a slow cooker and a Dutch oven, because technically a lot of people would think it's the same thing, but having the heat sourced in the, in the slow cooker is different than having the Dutch oven inside something hot. And I definitely noticed a difference. Like it was a slightly drier. I, I, I think the, um, the sauce, what's the word I'm looking for? Like it thickened it, it, um, whatever the word is I'm looking for. Like, yeah, it definitely, it definitely dried out a little bit more and there was a bit of a different flavor, but I think then taking that and doing it on the Traeger would definitely be the, would be the next step. And it's delicious. And then, you know, if you're lucky enough to be at around home when you're doing one of those cooks, just stir it up every once in a while, right? And yeah. you get so much flavor into like a chili or a stew or something like that. Yeah. Um, okay, another question. Oh, that was from Basecamp Doc, by the way. John D14 says, how often do you clean your grill and what's your like general cleaning slash maintenance regiment um, for, for your trigger? Uh so I vacuum out the inside, like, so I pull the drip tray out, all the liners, I vacuum it out. I try to vacuum it out between one and two bags of cooking. Okay. So I, and I try, and then when I do that, I just take a handful of good pellets and throw them back in the fire pot. So there's no delay in your startup time the next time. Okay. And then typically when I do that, I just cover the tin, the drip tray and tin foil, peel that tin foil off, put a fresh sheet on, and then just back to cooking with it. Okay. So a quick, easy. And what light. about the actual grill itself? Cause I, I've always been a barbecue guy. I turn it up. I normally turn it on high. I come back in yeah. the house for 10 minutes. I go outside. Now grill is hot. I never scrape a cold grill, scrape the hot grill. When this stuff comes off easy, same type of deal with the Traeger. Yeah. Yeah. You could totally do it the same way. Or when you pull out the grills to do it, just scrape them off then. And okay. I never wash them because I never okay. feel the need to, because you know, I cook so frequently on them. You could always give them a quick scrub down if you do cook. Like if you're, you know, if you're a long time between uses, but right. you know, it's kind of that seasoning thing you talk yeah, about, man. you know, you don't need to get rid of it all. Right. And sometimes, yeah. you know, I'll take the Traeger cleaner. It's all natural. and just spray it in there and wipe a little bit of the grime off around the edges, you know, just to keep it clean. But yeah. You know, you do a big, like a fatty cook, like let's say pulled pork, like a Boston butt or something like that. You're, you're going to want to wipe some of that fat off the, the inside of it. Right. But right. you know, just your everyday cooks, sometimes you, you don't even need to clean it. I just, the biggest thing is the vacuuming out the inside to get rid of that ash. And I know charcoal grill guys would say the same thing about their charcoal grills, vacuum out that ash in the bottom. So it just keeps it fresh and going. Okay. Um, I think we talked about this a little bit, but maybe hit on something we haven't. A Traeger people, most people don't try, but they should. A Traeger. Should I say that again? I think I might have said it. Did I read it wrong? Yeah, a Traeger people, a Traeger recipe, most people oh. don't try, but should. So maybe something a little bit, I mean, we've already touched on friggin' cookies and, and apple crisp, but maybe something else that you think most people wouldn't think of. Well. I would say that baking thing for sure, right? Like yeah. a baked cheesecake, crazy, but so good. You know, so there's some Traeger people I follow that that throw these ridiculous desserts out the window. Like they're just like, I can't even fathom doing that, right? And and they do an amazing job doing it. So baking, I think, would be huge. And then things like 
like vegetables are so simple, but so easy on the grill. Just throwing, you know, just throw a head of asparagus down on the grill. Most people, you know, they steam it in their house or taking, you know, three or four pieces of asparagus, wrap them in some bacon, throw them on the grill. Right. You change that flavor profile. It's not your same old lame steamed vegetable, but it's just so delicious. So much more flavor, little bit of crispness, like that bite to it, but it has the, you know, it's still cooked. I, I can't, you know, everyone thinks a grill is meant for meat, but it's meant for everything. So, you know, so on that note, there's one other recipe thing I want you to, cause you're the only, one of the only guys I've seen do this. Talk to me a, a minute about dips because I've seen you do some crazy dips on the Traeger. Well, you know, cheeses should be a food group on its own, right? So <laughs> anything with cheese takes so much flavor, right? And yeah. dips dips have so much ability to take in so much flavor. And to me, it's all about getting that flavor in and getting more into it, right? So, you know, doing everything from a bread bowl to just a simple baked dip, um, everything takes that flavor and you could cook it so nicely. And then you don't you know, you don't dry it out because there is moisture in that grill. So you don't have to worry about overcooking it. You get, you get it nice and bubbly and it usually turns out quite well. And dips are, you know, I actually forgot totally about dips, but dips are unreal, right? Like they just have so much flavor. Um, Doing like a, like a smoked brie type of dish. That is always delicious too, right? Like just things that, Things that you want to put more flavor into that you feel like lack, they can hit that grill and they can do so much. I'm thinking now, have you ever had halloumi? Yes. The Greek cheese. I'm thinking how good would that be? Because I've always done that like on a skillet or a frying pan on the stove or maybe even baked it. I can't remember now. But how good would something like that be? Just some sliced halloumi, maybe in like a cast iron pan right in the Traeger. Like that would be phenomenal. The, The one thing that I did... Uh, it was actually last January I did it, um, was, uh, like I did like a gyro or like a Dawn air or whatever you want to call it, took that and actually did the pita right on the grill, like took the raw, kneaded it into a round surface, just basted it with some garlic butter and just did it hot and fast, really quick on the grill. And that turned out amazing. Wow. And then then just, you know, did my skewers, like my chicken skewers on it. Yep. Little And then just filled it up with the veggies and it was, it was next level. Yeah. That'd be badass. Don't, All right. I, no, go ahead. My, my biggest thing is don't think of your Traeger just as a grill. Think out of, you know, try anything you want on it. Right. Right. It, the, the opportunities don't end. Oh, I think that's a great piece of advice. Um, and that, that was really like, you can do normal stuff like your chicken breasts. You can do really far out stuff. Like it's a very versatile uh, cooking device, 100% for sure. Um, all right, man, I want to be cognizant of, of time. We're doing this in the evening. I don't know it's getting a little bit late for everybody. We got to do this again. I'm thinking like every couple months, we got to do like a, like a cooking corner and maybe we'll, we'll challenge each other to bring like a couple recent recipes that we've done and we can like walk through kind of what we've done and see if people have any questions for, cause I, I learned a ton and I'll definitely, um, I will send you some some pictures of the brisket that I do up this weekend. Any any closing thoughts or anything you want to pass on or anything anything you want to say before we wrap it up? No, just enjoy cooking. That's what I would say, right? Take, you know, be the try something new and see how you how you like it and you never know, you might like cooking more than you realize. That's awesome. All right, thanks a ton Garth. Um 
everybody listening. As always, if you could take a moment, like, share, comment, subscribe, greatly appreciate it. And other than that, just thanks for tuning in. All right, Garth, have a good night, my friend. Thank you.